Pardik would like to acknowledge and pay respects to the traditional owners of the land we record on, the Wadjuk people. We also acknowledge the role of Aboriginal people as the first scientists in Australia. Welcome to a very special season of the Particle Podcast. We're calling it Summer Shorts, a guide to the science of summer. And today we are exploring the mysteries of the ocean floor. If you like the Particle Podcast, please leave a review, subscribe, or even tell a friend. We really appreciate all the love and support. Now, to set the scene, I need you to picture a beach. We were down in Bustleton, about three hours south of Perth. It was a sunny day, not too windy, seagulls squawking, people swimming. I was with Marlo from the Particle team and we jumped in a buggy and headed down the jetty until we got to the underwater observatory. We headed all the way down to the ocean floor, all within the safety of some very impressive engineering. But of course, we had a guide to show us the way. So I'm here at the Bustleton Jetty. I work as our environmental manager. And so my day-to-day job is primarily ensuring um, the sustainable development of Bustleton Jetty, as well as monitoring the health of the marine environment here. That's Sophie Teed. She's the person that brought us out to the underwater observatory to explain how it all actually works. It's quite challenging to um, stay up to date with the, the most relevant information, mm-hmm. which I think is important um, for all sorts of scientists, um, is to yeah, keep working to the most current information that you have. Another part of my job uh, is actually cleaning the windows of the observatory. Oh my goodness. On the outside. um, And we do that every week, even during the winter. So your listeners will know how crappy July and August is in WA. Um, So yes, you can think of me on those rainy days, often cleaning the windows in the ocean. How, how, I just... You must dive, obviously. Yes. Yeah, we do it on scuba diving. And then what? how do you clean a window underwater? Not with Windex. No. No. So um, that definitely goes against all of our um, environmental health principles. So we actually use um, a soft kitchen cloth mm-hmm. and... Um, really just give it a good scrub around the edges um, with a soft brush and then using the cloth to go over the acrylic window. So the underwater observatory is located uh, 1.7 kilometres from shore at the end of Bustleton Jetty. It's a really unique um, building. Uh, It's the only one in Western Australia but there's only five other underwater observatories in the whole world. So it's quite unique um, on all accounts uh, to have an underwater building. And ours um, especially so because we are so far offshore that the water here is eight metres deep. Mm. Several of the other observatories are just a few hundred metres from the shore. So being out um, in the open ocean makes ours quite unique. How on earth do you go about building, we're essentially in like a tunnel structure, it's like a tube that goes down to the bottom of the ocean, how on earth are we able to do that? So the process actually starts on land, 
So our observatory was designed and built here in Western Australia and it was constructed um, on land at the Henderson shipyards, so up near Fremantle. So the process was um, to build the concrete cylinder and then the windows were manufactured overseas in Japan mm -hmm. and they were shipped to Western Australia and then installed in the openings um, of the concrete skeleton and then it weighs 550 tonnes and oh. physics is not my um, strong point but even though it weighs 550 tonnes because it's a cylinder shape and trapped full of air it actually floats in the ocean. So just the concrete cylinder with the windows in, a steel lid was put on top as the yeah. roof and two tugboats tugged it wow. down here um, 200 kilometres to Bustleton. And then the lid came off and um, it had a partial ballast and then it was slowly filled up with seawater to sink it here to mm. the bottom. And around the base there are ground anchors, which are like giant screws mm -hmm. that screw into the seabed and they go down 20 metres wow. to the limestone bedrock. They were attached before all the water was yes. pumped back out the top. paint a bit of a picture, Sophie and I were chatting whilst looking out the jetty window, so sometimes marine life would catch our attention. Looking outside, we can see some of the, I guess, the posts that hold up yes. the jetty, and there's a whole bunch of beautiful rainbow coral with different colours and textures. This has formed some kind of, I guess, artificial reef. How are artificial reefs accepted into the ecosystem? Are they able to be used by all the animals right away? Does it take a really long time? How does it actually work? I think um, there's quite um, distinct stages in the, the formation of an artificial reef. And uh, in our instance, um, for Bustleton Jetty, it's an accidental artificial reef. Oh. The, the jetty was primarily built um, for commercial shipping. Mm -hmm. And just over time, um, the colonisation um, of the submerged structure by corals and sponges, and then bringing in other marine life such as fishes, to the area that colonization process has created the artificial reef wow so initially putting um, something bare into the marine environment um, you know a, a new jetty pile for example or a, a concrete module in the first um, days or weeks there's a, a biofilm so microscopic plants and, and bacteria that will settle onto the surface and the types of bacteria and plants that initially settle on actually determine what the end community structure will look oh. like. So you end up with different artificial reefs um, in different locations um, and that's because of the um, availability of different propagules in the, the water column. So, so any habit, additional habitat that we provide here, we could quite confidently say we'll eventually look like the, the jetty piles and the current existing environment. The use of artificial reefs um, today can, mm. can be used um, for environmental um, remediation in you know, restoring an environment mm. um, after you know, perhaps fishing stocks had depleted um, resources in an area, um, but can also enhance um, areas that are, we know that they're, they're less productive. You can enhance the yeah, productivity okay. of an ecosystem by increasing the habitat there. Oh, he's rainbow. Yeah. There's a little a little black spotted wrasse. Oh. Yeah. But pink and yellow and, and black spotty. Why would a fish be those fun 
colours? Because it's pink and yellow, which is pretty great. Yes. <laughs> well, when we're looking out at the jetty piles, you, you said they're quite colourful. Mm. So there's just about every colour of the rainbow. There's blue and yellow, mm. um, pink, green, there's purple and blue sponges. And so here the, the colourful fishes um, are what we would call our resident or reef fishes. So their entire home is around the jetty habitat. They um, will have a home base and they might not swim more than you know, a few hundred metres from where they live. So their coloration um, is their adaptation um, for their camouflage and their environment. Of course. The other uh, fish coloration, if you like, that's quite fashionable here under the jetty is black and white stripes. Mm. And that is camouflage uh, for out in the nearby seagrass meadows. So all of the long strappy leaves of the seagrass create, you know, quite vertical shadows. Mm -hmm. Um, So some fish will enter the um, enter the under jetty habitat from the seagrass and they're the stripy ones that we see around. With the coral that's growing you know, right in front of us, why is it colourful <laughs> as the starting point? Is that chance or is there a reason? The the coral itself, um, the coral polyps are actually white. Mm. Um, and so these look like little fluffy um, stars mm. on, growing out in finger structures from yeah. the jetty piles. So these are soft corals and all soft corals have eight tentacles. So you can actually see they're all out and blooming this afternoon that all of those little polyps have eight tentacles. Oh. Down the long finger part of the structure um, is orange and that bright orange colour is actually uh, a sea sponge. And so there is a symbiotic relationship with the coral and the sponge where the the sponge benefits by being able to increase its surface area by growing over this um, coral Mm -hmm. and therefore it can filter more water. And it also benefits the coral by giving that finger structure um, a bit more rigidity um, to stop it being so fragile. Wow, so like giving each other a home. Yeah. Oh, how sweet. <laughs> Out the window earlier we saw just a huge school of fish, so many fish. Uh, and this is a bit of a strange question, but look, all of, some of these questions are going to be okay. a little bit strange. <laughs> Do fish of different species ever hang out with each other and make friends? Yes. Uh, so the one of the schools that we can see out today is actually a, a mixed school. Oh. So we have silver trevally, um, which are the more a larger, quite bright silver with a, a forked tail. And uh, all of the trevally are bunched up together in the school. But just on top of that, that school are um, some Australian herring, which mm. are a longer fish. They have vertical bars of um, yellow dots with two black dots on the tip of their tails. Um, but they are are all schooling together but not mishmash they're still in their species group in that school one of the reasons that particularly schooling fish will do this um, is because of um, a kind of a herd mentality mm. and, and safety in numbers um, the fish do rotate themselves so poor little Johnny at the back isn't always the last fish out there. They do take turns to go into the middle um, and that will help them to appear um, just as one large fish. And then also in the instance of an attack, um, the school can um, disperse quite Mm -hmm. quickly and confuse the predator. That makes sense. So it's, yeah, safety in numbers thing. The reef fish uh, don't really gather together. They're quite 
solitary if you like um, but we do see under the jetty uh, setting up of cleaning stations which will be um, one type of fish um, they're usually a wrasse or um, we do see old wives doing the cleaning function where um, larger pelagic fish usually um, and any other sick fish with parasites will go into the cleaning station and allow the other fish to eat off any dead skin or Aww. little crustaceans that are, are living on them so it's not really kind of grouping together but it is fish helping doing each things other. together oh who's this over here uh, this is humpty dumpty Hello. it's a, a little um probably more formally known as a, a white barred box fish but a, a common name for them is humpty dumpty's because they're kind of a funny little boxy, oblong kind of shape, aren't they? Yes, a bit oval shaped like an egg. Are they, do they puff up? They look a little bit like a puffer fish. They're always puffed up rounded like <gasps> wow. that. Yeah, he's always a little tubby, tubby fish. Why do we see fish in so many different kind of shapes and sizes? Yeah, so there's two kind of two distinct shapes. You'll see um, here at the jetty your fish-shaped fish, which are streamlined, muscular. Yeah. They've mm -hmm. got a little triangular tail. Mm -hmm. uh, it's probably the fish that we all learn to draw first off fish. Um, these fish are kind of the fittest fish of the sea. Mm -hmm. So they travel um, thousands of kilometres um, on annual migrations. They can go you know, inshore and offshore. So they're the, the fit fish of yep. the sea. Yeah, um, they're the athletes of the sea. They're, we also like to eat the athletes of mm -hmm. the sea. They're, they're good muscles are, are also the tasty part. And then as you get closer, um, say, to the seabed or in a, a reef environment, that's where you get your funny-shaped fish, um, oblong shapes, ones with little tiny fins, rounded, you know, triangular-shaped, really beautiful, um, angelic and, and delicate features. Now, those fish don't need to go far to get food. They, oh. They'll stay in a, a small area. Um, all of their food and shelter is provided by that reef environment, mm -hmm. so they don't need to be too streamlined to, to get everything they need. Oh, we can see a sea star oh, sitting yes. down over here, kind of just lying flat, flat on his back. Um, a bright red sea star, yeah. big, bigger than your hand. These are quite large. Um, so this is commonly known as the um, the velvet star. So it looks it does quite, look quite soft. Velvety, yeah. Um, and these, this particular um, genus of sea stars is called Patricia, and this is Vernicia. Um, and I think you know what I'm going to say. So there's a pretty famous um, sea star on SpongeBob SquarePants. Yes, Patrick. And he's called Patrick. Oh, my goodness. And I just feel so certain that yes. um, they've got the name from yes. Patrick um, from the Latin name of this group of stars. I, I and these are, so. you might have seen um, getting around on the internet things about starfish bums. <laughs> the starfish bums, they're really <laughs> like squishy. That's these kind of starfish. Okay. And that, it's totally Patrick. This is the sound of the ocean outside the observatory. There's an underwater microphone just outside the windows, very appropriately called a hydrophone. Sophie said what we can hear now is movement of the waves and even some sea creatures. Coral bleaching is quite a big problem obviously across the world with climate change. Are we seeing the effects of coral bleaching here in Bustleton? No, uh, we're not seeing coral bleaching here in Bustleton. 
um, that's partly due to our distance from the equator. Oh, okay. So we are quite a long way from the equator and most of the world's hard corals are found um, just within about 15 degrees, uh, sorry, about 20 degrees north and south um, of the equator. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, they're quite close to the centre of the earth. And consequently with um, ocean warming that these warmer environments are already warming at a greater rate um, and the increases in uh, ocean temperature um, and other stresses on coral reefs are the the drivers for coral bleaching. Mm. So in saying that we are experiencing ocean warming um, here in the southwest so despite um, anything you might hear about climate change um, our uh, temperature monitoring program definitely shows an increase in ocean temperatures um, and quite significantly um, more than one degree above the historical average. So what that means um, and we are seeing evidence of it is actually new coral, new hard coral um, colonies being found on the sea floor. So this is quite interesting because our Um, Our artificial reef is vertical. It's the jetty piles that are joining the jetty deck to the the sea floor. And it's this habitat that is covered by a soft coral, so not a reef building coral. But over um, definitely the last five to six years, we're seeing uh, more evidence of hard coral colonies attached onto the seabed. Mm. Whereas traditionally, you know, our summer and winter would be too cold to allow these larvae to not only to settle, but, you know, to survive and be big enough that we can mm. see. Um, there's definitely hard coral communities um, 25 to 30 centimetres across. So there's not enough to build a reef, a coral reef here on yeah. the seabed, but um, I don't doubt that um, in the future we will have increasing coral cover um, in other locations yeah. on the West Coast. I mentioned earlier uh, to you on the way up how I had seen My Octopus Teacher, a documentary that came out recently. With that in mind, (laughs) octopi or octopuses, do we get lots of them down here at the jetty? Yes, we see so many octopus. Um, We see uh, what is called the gloomy octopus, which is quite, uh, I say it's cosmopolitan around Australia. So kind of a single species um, between here in Bustleton, um, right across to Sydney. So that whole lower half of Australia um, does see the the gloomy octopus. And they are, um, as we know, they're, they're really clever, um, quite um, able to solve lots of puzzles. The octopus love coming onto the window and looking at us on the inside. Um, quite numerous around the observatory um, in their uh, little dens. So you do have your octopus garden out the front, oh. which is often um, decorated with empty barnacle shells um, and mussel shells, which are, are their favourite foods. Uh, so you could definitely have a summer rendezvous with an octopus here <laughs> under the jetty. Yes. Um, that is for sure. <laughs> I think they're a bit creepy. Yeah, well, they've got too many legs yep. and they're too smart. They're so and smart. I have had an experience um, when I was doing some monitoring on a jetty pile that quite a large one. Um, so they can grow up to a metre across uh, like arm, tentacle arm to oh tentacle arm. And uh, yeah, a fully grown one was actually coming up my legs. <gasps> and I didn't know because I was busy, you know, taking my measurements on the pile and... 
uh, yeah, I just finished what I was doing and I did my, I'd never saw it, which is why I kind of turned off because I didn't know it was there and my buddy tried to get my attention, but I was busy (laughs) and I didn't really turn around. And then when I swam off, it it went back to its den. So I just think, are they always doing that? I don't know. (laughs) We have a developing theory in the team that, uh, octopuses are actually aliens yes <laughs> i have read about this on the internet octopus are aliens where did their dna come from because they're just so clever they got to evolve in such an exciting way yeah humans out here just with two legs and two arms very disappointing and one brain like, yeah <laughs> yeah what does a coral reef look like at night and um, that's an interesting question it, it, it looks different um, depending what kind of animal you are. Oh, yeah. So fish have quite well-developed eyesight and mm-hmm. some species can see ultraviolet rays in the water and many species of coral and fish um, have the ability um, for bioluminescence. So oh. they literally glow in the dark. Some of this bioluminescence um, is visible to us uh, so, at it, um, you know, entering a um, reef environment at the night time, you can sometimes see these red or green glows um, around fishes or um, corals, and uh, you see sometimes in the water like bioluminescent plankton or diatoms, mm-hmm. um, and they'll give like a blue kind of washy. You wow. might have seen some videos of that as the waves wash ashore and they're iridescent blue. Um, there's been increasing research um, into like fluorescence or mm-hmm. phosphorescence um, in a whole range of um, different types of animals. So we generally can't see phosphorescence unless we have an ultraviolet light. Um, so many, many things, corals and um, fishes will have different colours um, under ultraviolet light. So they will look different. You know, fish will see different things to, to us in the ocean. The daytime fishes will go to sleep. Yeah. So they will have a, a little bed, you know, Ooh. underneath a fallen jetty pile or in some rocks. And they will go to sleep wow. um, overnight. So you know, protect themselves so you, like, um, and close have their a rest. Eyes, like, sleep, they don't sleep. really, they don't close their eyes, but they they, they kind of lay on their side. They do, <laughs> they do lay on their side. Um, and then, you know, nighttime predators will come out. Um, so things like squid, octopus, um, big Samson fish, they, they will come out um, to get any uh, easy food of the nighttime. What's one of the weirdest things you've seen while down here? I know obviously you're often doing other things like surveys or cleaning, all that kind of things. But when you have come down on a tour, is there anything that you've been like, whoa, that's a surprise? Um, it wasn't on a tour, but it was um, whilst out um, on, a, on a snorkel survey. Um, so around the, in the surface waters, so you know, zero to two metres deep. We actually saw barnacles mating. Whoa! Yeah, so barnacles are settled onto a surface, so they're cemented on um, by their heads, and so they're kind of upside down on the jetty pile. So you think of a poor barnacle, it's attached on for its life. Yeah. So um, they're male and female, so separate sexes, and uh, a barnacle penis is really long. <laughs> so if it's going to go looking for a girlfriend, it has to pop out a little long kind of beigey, peachy coloured <laughs> thing, like a big worm, and it goes over and 
goes in this barnacle wow. and says, whoops, you're not, you're not the target. And <laughs> oh it will just God. keep searching until it finds a, a female to um, deposit its sperm and, wow. and she'll fertilise her eggs and release them into the water column. So, yeah, we, yeah, we got to see a barnacle penis. Wow, that is just not charming at all. Not charming at all. Um, but yeah, factual. That's that's hey. Mother Nature, yeah. and uh, probably not many people have seen a barnacle willy. Are artificial reefs kind of being used more in the world for restoration, mm. or are they still quite, you know, not known about? It is becoming quite fashionable um, and I think particularly uh, in Western Australia, most major regional towns now either have or do have coming in the next few years um, some type of artificial reef. Unfortunately, these reefs are being targeted purely for um, recreational fishing um, as opposed to environmental um, restoration or increasing um, productivity of a a particular region. They're they're really being sold um, as a um, a tool and as as a resource for Mm. recreational fishing. Um, And I think that... um, you know, if we're talking about management of our marine environments, then we could put a, a lot more. Um, there is monitoring that that does happen, um, and it's you know of a fantastic standard. But I think we can sell them a bit better for the benefits that they do provide to um, environment and and the ecosystem services that they provide to marine life. Of course, where do fish go in a big storm? Great question. Yeah, it just so, occurred to me. <laughs> yeah, we get some epic storms out here um, at the end of the jetty. So where we're standing, we're at the water level. Mm. Um, it's five or six metres up to the deck level and probably at, at least twice a year the waves are so big out here that uh, the they're over the top of the <gasps> concrete decking up there. So, Spooky. yeah, that's a, a six-metre wave. Wow. Um, so the wind is over 100 kilometres an hour, you know, the swell is five metres plus. Um, yeah, it gets pretty epic. So it's not much fun to be a fish no. when it's rough like no. that. Um, and w- w- the water does get quite stirred up here. So it's difficult to say, you know, with any certainty, you know, are there fish still here? And yeah. um, I mentioned about my diving happening year round. So we still dive in the winter and there are still fish around. But um, there's a, a paper um, that was written in, um, about Warnborough Sound and a study that um, really found that your, your delicate fish, so, you know, those little angelic pretty ones that are, are down around the bottom, they will um, really go and take shelter okay. um, until the storm has passed mm-hmm. and, and then come out when it's safe again. And that, you know, makes a lot of sense to us because it's pounding out here. The Those fish would, you know, either not, they'd get washed away or, you know, they'd get washed onto some of that hard structure and, you know, probably be quite badly injured. So the robust fish will stay around, but mm-hmm. those delicate ones will hide somewhere and ride out the storm. And finally, is this, uh, like seeing everything going on and seeing all the fish living in here, um, what is, you know, a human-made structure initially for human purposes, is this one of those, you know, kind of unique examples of human impact being a good thing? Yes. Um, so the the jetty wasn't built to be an artificial reef. It no. was built as a port and... 
you know, in the um, the early years, the the coastal connection, you know, with the people of of Bustleton Jetty. So, you know, not related to the work that happened here, but the people's attachment to the jetty is really with the, that marine environment. It's the, the stories of people coming fishing here, um, families coming snorkelling here and, and, you know, jumping off or, or seeing whales going past. And all of those things are a, a function of the, um, the smaller corals and sponges that create that reef system mm-hmm. um, down at the, the habitat level. Um, so whilst it, it wasn't the purpose to enhance the marine environment here, quite a, um, a really beautiful quirk of nature that, um, that the jetty has become um, the productive system it, it is. And we actually often say here that man built a jetty but mother nature created the reef. I hope that people visiting the, obser- the observatory um, have a initially have a positive um, reaction to you know to the colors it's beautiful it looks like a painting out there and the diversity of fishes you'll easily see you know 20 or 30 different types of fishes that you've probably never seen before and they're all very common local species and I think quite often the ocean is is pictured as as dangerous and you're going to get eaten by a shark or stung by a jellyfish if you go in past your knees and it's really really just not the case. You can have such an enjoyable time on the water and learn um, so much about yourself and and reflect on um, just life. The, The vastness of the ocean is quite powerful and so we hope to connect people to the environment because these are common animals in Western Australia and we're just giving people the opportunity to see them. I love that. Fantastic. Thank you so much for taking the time to hang out with us, Sophie. Thank you, Rose. It's been a pleasure to to take you under the sea with me today. Thanks for listening to The Particle Podcast. This podcast is presented and produced by me, Rose Kerr. Videography by Rockwell McGellan, Zaya Alton-Gerald and Michael Gatt. Thanks to Marlo Ray for final reviews and, of course, coming out to the observatory with me. Big thank you this week, of course, to the team at the Underwater Observatory in Bustleton for being just so incredibly lovely and letting us visit. You can find Particle on all of the socials as well as at particle.scitech.org.au. Particle is powered by SciTech and everything we make is produced in the wonderful science hub of Western Australia on Wadjuk Country. <laughs>